0: I actually think that, I don't think I was really told this, but I I feel like my church life taught me that the life of the mind and the life of the intellect were not really compatible with the life of faith. And so I felt like I had to choose between them. I liked to read, you know, more mature books than my age. I like to read realistic books that dealt with, I mean, I had a wonderful life and I guess I just also, (laughs) to counteract it, I like to read, you know, grittier stories and um, realistic ones.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today, our guest is Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a professor of English
2: at Liberty University. Let's jump right into our conversation. Karen, delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, well, we're looking forward to talking with you about your book that has gotten a lot of, has made quite a splash, as I understand it, um, and uh you know reading blogs and and checking Twitter and all that those aren't always great judges, but it seems like on reading well has done has done very well as a book uh, and and people are are responding very positively to it. Has that been your sense as well
0: It, it is my sense I think um, it, I've gotten great feedback from reviewers but just everyday readers um, and you know the sales have been good, which is nice just because that means that people want to read about reading and (laughs) read about books. So yeah, it's been, uh, I've been very pleased with the results.
2: That's great. That's great. Well, we're excited to talk about the book and also about uh, the implications and applications of it for pastoral ministry and church leadership. So we'll look forward to doing that. But um, thought we could spend the first part of this conversation uh, getting to know you a little bit better and your story uh, as a literary scholar and a professor and a kind of a public intellectual. Is it fair to call you a public intellectual?
0: Oh I, I can't be the judge of that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about kind of where you were born and reared, Karen. And uh, I think of the 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 um, collection of essays by Marilyn Robinson that pops into mm-hmm. my mind. When mm-hmm. I was a child, I read books, and I and that's mm-hmm. my question is when you were were a child, did you read books? Uh,
0: yes, I did, and actually, most people don't know that my very first book, uh, which was published by a small independent literary publisher tells this whole story. Ah. Um, that that book is called "Booked Literature in the Soul of Me." And even before Marilyn Robinson uh, <laughs> and, and Pat Conroy and so many others were writing about the way that books shape their lives, I actually wrote one of the first um, books. Actually, there's a they call them shelfies. Um, okay, their books about about how books shaped us. And, um, so yeah, I was, um, uh, born in rural Maine. Um, so I'm a true, uh, Yankee. (laughs) You can't get much more North than that. Um, and, um, you know, my mother read to all of us when we were kids and, um, I guess I'm the one that it really stuck with. I, I, was the proverbial child with her nose always in a book.
2: Oh, is that right? Um,
0: Oh, yes, always, always. I would get dragged to my older brother's sports games and um, take my book along. And my parents tell me I would if it was baseball, I would lie on the grass and put the blanket over my head and just make my own little tent and read the book. And I'd be reading Shakespeare on the high school bleachers while my brothers played basketball. Um, So. I just fell so is in that love you're for waiting for
1: you're waiting for your parents to come pick you all up from school, and you're stuck there while your brothers have basketball practice. So you sit there and read. No, is, these is were that like the, the
0: games. Oh, we the games all, yeah, themselves. I had yeah, the games. I had <laughs> okay. to go yeah until I was old enough to stay by myself. <laughs>
2: and and so look at just, that, what, what do you what do you make? Is that was that just the way your brain is wired, Karen, or was it the influence of your family, your parents, the modeling in the home, or was, did you have bookshelves full of books in your house? How, how did how did that come yeah. about?
0: Uh, I mean, you know, you know, my, my mom read to us a lot and you know, but I, I just, I don't know. I just loved reading. Yeah. Um, I, I think I am, um, a little bit more of an introvert. I'm kind of half and half, but, um, you know, we lived in the country. I preferred to be by myself and yeah. play by myself and loved animals. I felt, you know, my first love was like all the animal stories and, okay. um, and then later books about animals and, um. I think it must just be the way that I was wired.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and was faith present in your home? Did you up in a Christian home or a, a, a committed faith based home of any kind?
0: I did. My, uh, my parents, um, were Christians. Um, and when I was, um, we originally, I was originally baptized, um, as an infant in the Methodist church. Um, but then when I was, um, a few like, five Years old, I think my parents started going to an independent Baptist church. Um, and so they became more, you know, more uh, committed and about in their, their evangelical Christian faith. Um, and so that's most of my growing up was in that kind of church. Um, and as I got, you know, into my adolescence and teenage years, um, and went through my rebellious stage. Um, And I I do, I do talk about this a lot in my, in my book. Um, I mean, I was doing the normal teenage things, but I actually, um, I actually think that, that I, I don't think I was really told this, but I I had, I, I feel like my church life taught me that the life of the mind and the life of the intellect were not really compatible with the life of faith. Yeah. And so I felt like I had to choose between them. I liked to read, um, you know, more mature books than my age. I like to read, you know, uh, realistic books that dealt with, I mean, I had a wonderful life. And I guess I just also, (laughs) to counteract it, I like to read, you know, grittier stories and um, realistic ones. And uh, my parents, allowed me to read whatever I wanted to. Yep. And if I had questions and I would ask what a word meant or something like that, you know, I could go to them and, and talk about it. But in the church, you know, I went to a youth group where, um, you know, the pastor told us in one night at a sleepover about the dramatic moment in his life when he burned all his records. Yes. Um, and yeah, that did not, uh, that just didn't fit well with what I was learning and, and the love that I was beginning to have of the things of the mind and asking questions and engaging, engaging with the world, being in the world, but not of it. Um, and so for a long time, I, I, I thought that I could, I had to choose one or the other. And so I, I just chose the life of books and the mind. And it wasn't until I was in my PhD program uh, and had a, a very, um, very, very liberal, secular, kind of um, deviant professor <laughs> in my mind. He was shocking. Um, but he found out that I was a Christian because I confronted him in, in class one day when he said something derogatory about Christians. And um, he apologized. And we wow. began began a conversation where he started talking to me about the Christian legacy in literature. And he started t- telling me about John Milton oh, and wow. reading promiscuously. He told me about my Christian heritage um in terms of literature and learning and and the life of the intellect yes and so that is when i finally began to be able to put the two together the way they are supposed to be
2: marvel in graduate school when you were doing your phd and how how did you get to the place where you said i think i want to go to a phd in literature and and i assume in route to becoming a a professor of literature i assume was the, the career vocational goal is that right
0: um well, it it I, it really was God's providence because I started out in college as a social work major, oh, wow. which really would have been a disaster. <laughs> um, and I had always loved English, as you know, and, and reading. I already I said that, and always got great grades and in. in public high school I went to I'm a product of entirely secular education um Mm. but it was never challenging and I never thought of I didn't even know until I got to college that you could treat that you could treat literature and English seriously I just thought it was something fun to do and um so in my sophomore year I, I switched my major to English um and the last thing I ever wanted to do my entire life there are two things I said I would never do in all my dreams of becoming, you know, a career woman. Um, and one of them was be a nurse and the other was to be a teacher. (laughs) Um, and, um, so when I, when I finished my undergrad, um, I didn't, well, I, 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 didn't think that I wanted to teach. I didn't necessarily want to write. I mean, I enjoyed writing, but I didn't see myself as being a writer. Um, and so I didn't really know what to do. I'd done an internship in an office at a marketing agency and realized I hated cubicles (laughs) and pantyhose and nine to five schedules. So on a whim, I applied to, um, the PhD program at the university in the city where I was living. And that was a year when they accepted a lot of applicants because they thought, um, that there was going to be a shortage of human professors in the humanities, um, And so I got admitted with just my bachelor's degree, which is the providence of
2: God. Incredible.
0: It was absolutely the providence of God. I didn't know what I was doing. And it wasn't until that I got a, you know, a student, a a graduate assistantship and started to teach English composition. And that was when I discovered what God created me to do. It was to teach. I had no idea that's no my
2: idea. Hey, Karen, can, let me, can I just go back a little bit? All that reading you were doing sort of as an adolescent child and and then through college, was it all fiction or were you also reading a, some or a lot of nonfiction?
0: I was mainly, you know, as a child, I was mean, you know, I was reading storybooks and then I was reading fiction. Um, I did read some poetry. I tried to write poetry, you know? Um, and so it was, and then when I got into college, um, you know I mean I I felt I, it, you know it was it was mainly fiction but I fell in love with Chaucer and Shakespeare uh, yeah. I mean I guess you know all literature uh-huh. um and uh so and my my period of specialty is um the English novel and 18th century literature so that includes early novels but also you know satire um poetry drama um so yep. liter- literature literature literature
1: Hey everybody, just a quick note about our annual conference here at the Center for Pastor Theologians. This year's topic is... Techne, A Christian Vision of Technology, and we will be hosting this conference in Chicago on October 14th to 16th, 2019. We have a lot of great speakers lined up, including Andy Crouch, Pastor Charlie Dates, Karen Swallow Pryor, and a great lineup of pastors, scholars, academic theologians, and sociologists, as well as tech experts. It's going to be A great set of conversations, and I encourage you to go to our conference website, cptconference.com, to
2: learn more and to register. Let's get right back into our conversation with Karen Swallow-Prior okay I, I, part of the reason why i ask is i have spent so much time reading non-fiction and and comparatively very little time reading fiction and i probably shouldn't this sounds like i'm confessing this to you <laughs> <laughs> um but i and i it seems to me that it works different parts of the brain you know i mean not i don't mean that quite literally or tech, mm-hmm. but but it, it's it's a different very different experience <laughs> Um, and I wonder if I've developed the nonfiction reading muscles and have, have not developed the fiction reading muscles as much. You you might think reading a book is reading a book is reading a book, but that doesn't seem to actually be the case. Is that, do you think that's right?
0: Well, I think, um, so the, there are some categories here that would make an interesting Venn diagram, yes. right? So I think a lot of people that I talk to, especially, pastors and theologians <laughs> <laughs> people um, like me. <laughs> yeah. Um, they often see think of along the categories of fiction and nonfiction and, and I get that. But really for me the categories are literary and non-literary. Hmm. So ah. so you know, an essay, a a finely written essay like one by, you know, Samuel Johnson or, you know, or yeah, you know, there could be or Pascal or, or Whoever, something yes, like that. Or yeah. Anchor, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's about literary language versus non-literary language. So, huh. um, so literary, you can read an essay or a work of nonfiction that uses language artfully. Now, obviously nonfiction is not going to use it as artistically as fiction just because of the nature of it. Yeah. But um, to me, the difference has to do with the way that you treat language. Do, are you treating language in just kind of a utilitarian flat way to get the information across as like quickly as possible? Like an accounting
2: textbook is just using yes. it kind of for its right. utilitarian function. There's no adorning the language, right. you know, with right. any aesthetic sort of oomph or whatever. It's just trying to get the job done.
0: Right, right. But you can read theology and philosophy, maybe not often, but you can read, you can find it. You know, Jonathan Edwards would be a great example of yes. someone who, whose nonfiction is very literary. Um, and so, you know, so I think that's the most important distinction. But yes, I do think to your original point, I do think that there is something And I'll, you know, I can, there's more I can say about it, but I'll stop for a second. But, but fiction does do something and does exercise different kinds of, of muscles in the brain and the imagination and our empathetic powers that um, nonfiction doesn't do.
2: Mainly the imagination, empathetic powers. Is that why, I mean, would you say it's, it's harder to read fiction, literary fiction that's rich and sophisticated? That's a harder thing to do because it, as it were, it demands more of the person.
0: Yes. And so again, between, you know, nonfiction and fiction, yes, but also so many people, you know, because I write about novels and classic literature, they'll often talk about fiction, but it's not like, I'm not writing or talking about non-literary fiction. Yes. Um, So if, if, and there's nothing wrong with reading non-literary fiction, you know? So I, I mean, I listen, um, you know, when I'm running, I'm I'm starting to learn to listen to books because that's a skill I, I don't have haven't developed a lot yet. But so I listen to books, but they, they primarily have to be entertaining books like Stephen King, or, yeah. you know, now I'm reading, uh, listening to Pat Conroy, who's a pretty good writer, but um, or a suspense novel, a mystery, it makes me run faster. Um, <laughs> <but> those are, <laughs> those are <laughs> I wish, um, but that that's entertainment. So a lot of the beach reads that you might read or mystery novels yep. are 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 like watching a watching a drama or a sitcom on television. They're entertainment, but they don't they don't work the same way that literary fiction does. Literary fiction really requires a lot more of us it's not just about finding out what happens there's a lot more that happens in the way that the language is used
2: but in your judge in your judgment there's no there's no line that demarcates the literary and the non-literary is that right karen there it is a bit of a spectrum so so some might could some argue that that stephen king at his best is is literary is that fair i
0: i would i would say that he does sometimes reach that um So yes, it is a spectrum. Um, I mean, there are, there are works that clearly are literary and works that are clearly not literary, but there is a lot of gray in between. And those are the kinds of things that, um, that, you know, literary critics like to argue about. And I actually teach a class in, um, uh, poetics, which is literary aesthetics, um, a graduate course and, and uh, the at the end of the semester, they actually have to answer. I mean, their final paper is basically answering what makes good literature good, yes. um, and yeah. they take. You know, I mean, that's it's a it's a really hard question,
2: and it's a fascinating distinction: literary and non-literary, and then applying that to non-fiction. So right. thinking in right. in, an, in our world, thinking about theologians or biblical scholars that are literary as opposed to those that are non-literary. I think of Albert Schweitzer as a literary non-fiction mm-hmm. writer. His quest yes, of the yes. historical Jesus is brilliant. And there are turns of phrase and the prose is shimmering and, and amazing. Um, or I think Karl Barth as a theologian is at least at certain places um, literary. Is it, do, you, do you think that's fair? You like that, Just that yes, the way I'm yes. putting that?
0: Yes, absolutely. And And again, it all has to do with the way the writer is using language or attempting to use language. So a a, a simple analogy is to think about paint. Um, Mm. When we use paint to cover a wall, which is a wonderful thing to use paint for um, that's not making a painting. Yes. Right. So if you take the same materials and try to use it to recreate something other, something about human experience, then you have created a work of art and non know, non-fiction writers and theologians and philosophers can do that with language. Um, But again, it, you know, it's, it's, it takes an effort. It's an intention. It's a little trickier because we don't all walk around with paint all day, um, but we do all use language. So it, it, it just, because we are, you know, language creatures and we use language in the simplest things that we do, um, it gets harder and harder to see that line between an artistic use of language and just sort of the, you know, functional or utilitarian use of language that, you know, that is part of what it means to be a human.
2: That's really, that's really helpful. Karen, uh, just to finish, round out your personal story, I think you've been at Liberty. You're, you're a professor of English at, at Liberty University. Yes. I, I think you've been there your whole career. Is that right? Or nearly your whole that's career? Co-
0: that's correct. When I finished my PhD and went on the job market and applied a few different places, um, I got the job at Liberty, and that was 20 years ago. I'm starting my 21st year wow. right now. Wow,
2: amazing. <laughs> and how has that been? Get, d- describe that. Tell us how that's been.
0: I mean, it's, it's so it's so different now. I mean, of it has there are changed, been, a ton, it's hasn't, changed a ton. Changed a lot, the years. yes, a ton. Um, I mean, even when when I came, it had already changed a lot. Um, you know, some of the differences are that when I came, there were four thousand four hundred undergraduate residential students, and now there are sixteen thousand.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and you know, when I came, the uh, guys had to wear a shirt and tie to class, and the girls had to wear a dress or a skirt. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, and I got stopped for dress code violations three times. Um,
3: (laughs) as a, as a faculty member,
0: as a, yeah, they thought I was a student. (laughs) I just, I just, they just get the the RAs. They just gave me warnings and I just went along with it.
3: You wiped your brother?
2: I survived. I escaped.
0: (laughs) but um so it, so it's just gotten much bigger um it's more its identity is more broadly evangelical as opposed to like yeah. independent fundamentalist Baptist yes um and uh, you know of course building I mean it was the ugliest place I ever.
2: And, and I've been out there a couple of times, Karen, I, you know, as you know, I've been out there a couple of times and it, it every time I go out there, just, there's, there's another 14 or 15 buildings that have been built.
0: Yes. It's and they're just beautiful now. It they, is you incredible. know, they really, we, they have matured to a level of of care about aesthetics and um, beauty that I just never expected of Baptists. And so, so. how,
2: yeah, so how, how has that gone though, as a, as a literary scholar who prioritizes the use of language and, as you were talking about earlier, is very intellectually curious and open to all kinds of ideas and the breadth of human experience and even talking about reading things that are gritty and all of this kind of stuff. How did that go, maybe particularly in your early years, in Mm -hmm. a school that leans a little bit more sort of independent fundamentalist direction? Uh, Were there some tensions there for you or how did you navigate your, your role and vocation and vision of of the intellectual life in that setting?
0: Well, when I first, you know, again, I I was a product of entirely secular education myself and I had to kind of in those last years of finishing up my um, PhD and for myself, I was actually, I mean, Okay, now I'm going to take a long time to answer. So I was taking, I was auditing. I was actually done with my coursework, but I was auditing with one of my favorite professors, a class on writing reviews. And we were reading popular. We we were talking about some of the things we've been talking about. We were reading Oprah Book Club picks and watching Ah. movies and writing reviews about them. And um, we got to a point where the students were starting to say that you couldn't really make a judgment about the quality or the goodness of a work. Kind of
2: aesthetic relativists.
0: Yes. And I knew Which you don't that,
2: accept. You don't buy
3: this. Which
0: I, I don't, but I had never faced this question before. Wow, yes. And so this is, you know, this is over 20 years ago. And so I knew they were wrong, but I didn't know how to I didn't know how to um to, to say that they it. were wrong. I didn't know how right. Yeah. And so I I actually I I don't know if you know Gene um, Edward Beeth, provost at Patrick sure, Henry yeah, College yeah. and an author of many, he's a, an English professor. I had yeah. been reading his books and reading World Magazine for a long time. And, and he he was the only person, the only Christian English professor that I knew of who was addressing these questions. And I contacted him out of the blue, a total stranger, oh, and, wow. and told, said, I, I don't know how to answer these questions in my secular classroom. And he helped me. He that's gave me marvelous. things to read, and so I took them back. And that's when my um, when I began to carve out this newer specialty that I have in aesthetics, literary aesthetics from a Christian worldview. Yes. Um, anyway, and so when I went to Liberty. I, you know, for myself, I had had to kind of go through this sort of basic boot camp about why we read literature. And so I developed this lecture that I always started my English classes at. You're with. You're kind of apologetic, bibli- as it were. Yes. Yeah. The, the biblical basis for the study of literature. And I <laughs> You're was sounding my like my Lee Riken li- now, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the and kind so, of things
2: that uh, you you hear at Wheaton.
0: <laughs> so that's that's how I began teaching my classes. And, and I was actually... Um, I seldom had the kind of problems that some professors would have with students objecting to a work of literature or something like oh, that, because wow. I built this foundation. Oh, interesting. And when I became the university, I mean, that was the thing at Liberty. I, the, we never had any problems from the administration um, in terms of the things that we would, we would teach. When I became chair of the department, I did have, agreement with a parent um over some things that were being taught and um so that was the the greatest moment of tension that i had but the university completely backed me up and Mm. um you know from all the way up to the top
1: thanks for listening to today's episode be sure to tune in next week for the rest of our conversation with karen swallow prior Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlacher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.